Hey, this is Scott. Thanks for checking out the podcast of Grace Fellowship Church. Hope it's encouraging for you and helps you take your next steps in your faith journey. Enjoy. Hey, this is Scott. Thanks for checking out the podcast of Grace Fellowship Church. Hope it's encouraging for you and helps you take your next steps in your faith journey. Enjoy. All right, so that's hammer time. That's done out of the way. Go ahead and grab your Bibles. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. It's page 744 in your orange Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, please take one of those orange Bibles under your seats. It's so important to us that everyone has a copy of God's Word. Now, last week, what we did, we started a conversation about what happened in the early church, kind of in the shadow of the resurrection of Jesus. This morning, we're going to continue that study as we look at the early church, how it exploded in growth, and what made it so powerful, so effective, and ultimately so healthy, and then what that means for us as a church. Now, in the last week and a half, I found some folders that had photos that I had forgotten about altogether. So I've been kind of working my way through some of these old photos of my family, and I found some pictures from when my oldest son, when he was born in the hospital. Look at how cute he is. Wasn't that as adorable this one is? That's canon. Looking at all of these pictures that I saw of him in the hospital, it's not just how cute he was, but then I look at Jennifer and I, and I'm like, gosh, we were young. <laughs> she looks the same. I look completely different, right? And, and she was a rock star. She, did, she had no medication whatsoever with Canon. It was just awesome. And, and, I, and I remember as I see these pictures what it felt like for that first child. Not only these warm feelings of affection, but there's also this moment, and if you're a parent, you recognize this, where you realize how unbelievable it is that you're now responsible for this young life that has just been born. Like everything about this baby needs your help. How, when, when they go to bed, what they eat, if they're too hot, if they're too cold, have they get changed, like everything, it's all reliant on you. And it's okay when you're in the hospital because you have some nurses that are there with you. And then when you're like, I don't quite know what to do about this. Is this normal? They can, oh, yeah, it's fine. Let me take the baby. You guys get a rest. And so there's help when you're in the hospital. But then there comes this time where they say, okay, it's time for you to go home now. And they, and they, they set the mom in the wheelchair and they put the baby carrier on the mom, put the baby in the baby carrier, and they wheel you out to the car and they say, good luck. Why is it you need a, a license to drive a car, but all you have to be is the legal guardian to take this baby home and care for it? And I remember what it was like when we were home with Cannon and we just left the car carrier like on the floor and we were like, now what do we do? Like, does he stay? I guess we should take him out, right? And so we, we just had this process of trying to figure out how to feed him how to care for him, and as a parent, here's what you're asking. You're just asking, God, I just want to make sure that they are healthy. I just want the baby to be healthy, and moms carry this weight uniquely, you know, like they're responsible for feeding the child, so it was just something that was this internal anxiety. I just want to raise a healthy kid. Thank you, Lori. You guys remember what that felt like? feels a little different on child, uh, the subsequent children, but that first child, do you remember what that felt like? On the day of Pentecost, 
We talked about this briefly last week. The day of Pentecost in the New Testament, the book of Acts, Pentecost was a, a holiday that the Jewish culture studied there, celebrated, and it was 50 days. That's what it meant. It was like 50 days after the start of a thing, right? And, the, and, and they show up in the city, and the Spirit of God's unleashed on the people of God. And when Peter stood up, he said, Jesus Christ was one that you crucified, and God raised him from the dead. He is the Lord and he is the Messiah. He bore witness to this, to all of these people. And it tells us in the book of Acts chapter two that when the people heard this, that they had crucified the Messiah, that God had resurrected him from the grave, that they were cut to the heart and they're like, what should we do? And Peter said, you should repent. I love there's a definition of repentance by a guy named Dallas Willard. It says simply to change how you think and how you act about something. And so they changed how they thought and how they acted, and they believed in the person of Christ. And it says this. It says that 3,000 people were added to their numbers that day. Imagine a group of people, 12 men, maybe a larger group of folks, maybe 100 and that happens. Peter steps out. The Holy Spirit is there. He delivers the word. And they go from 100 to 3,000 overnight. It was probably a little bit of that emotion that we feel as young parents like, well, now, now what do we do? <laughs> what, what are you supposed to do with 3,000 people in order that they would be like healthy, like we wanna teach them what it means to follow after Jesus and what this is all about. And so we wanna look at this moment in time when the church had this spark and it just exploded and it grew overnight. And I think this is such an important passage in Acts chapter two, page 744 in your Bibles. I think it's so, such an important moment because it shows us a snapshot about what it means to be a healthy resurrection community. They had heard the testimony of the resurrection, but this is now what it means to be a healthy resurrection community. And my hope is that as we look at what was going on in this moment in time, we kind of pull that back into our church experience as well and into our personal lives. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at three rhythms of what a healthy church looks like in Acts chapter two. Someone turn to Acts chapter two. And uh, let's actually tell you what, let's just read this together. Let's just read this together. Here we go, let's do this together. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. That's a short verse, let's read it again because you guys have more in you than that. Here we go. <laughs> they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. We're gonna talk about those three rhythms, but I just wanna point out one thing first. They devoted themselves. Fellowship, and as we go on, what we're going to see is that the language and the experience of what happened at this spark moment where 3,000 people came and joined the church, that this was largely a corporate thing. This was a collective thing. This was a, a group thing that they did together. Now listen, in our culture, we are like hyper-individualistic. Everything is about my personal liberty, my personal viewpoints, my personal property, my personal rights, my personal thoughts, my personal beliefs. But for them, it was this collective thing. They did this together. We can't get away from the fact that this was something that was experienced in community. 
And that's, that's kind of the first point that I just want to touch on, that we're called to do this in community. We're going to talk about what that means. But this weekend, I, I know that many of us think that our faith is a personal thing. And while it is a personal thing, it was never meant to be a private thing. It's always God's plan. Listen, not that he would just save individual persons, but that he would create a new kind of people. In the Old Testament, it was the Jewish nation that was the people of God, and the way that you became a part of the people of God was through birth. And now it was through faith. And, and Paul would even expand and say the Gentiles are a part of this too. God was creating a new kind of people, a new kind of body. People were guided and directed by Christ. That was the community that they were creating. Listen, I wrote it this way, that a resurrection witness will always lead to a resurrection community. Because healthy things will grow. Healthy things will multiply. Disciples will make disciples. Life groups will plant more life groups. Churches plant more life, plant more churches. A, a resurrection witness will always lead to a resurrection community. Because when you've witnessed the, the, the resurrected Christ, here's why it turns you into from like this individual thing to this collective thing. Because all of a sudden you start to realize this thing that you've witnessed, Christ being resurrected from the dead. He was dead and now he's alive again. I put my hands in his wounds, the disciples would say. That's so much bigger than me. Just me and, me and some God time. No, 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 no. God is doing a new thing in the world. For God so loved not just Scott, but God so loved the whole world that he gave his son to create a new person, a new people unto his own. And when you see it that way, here's what you recognize, that, that my expression of faith is not about my glory. It's not. I mean, how could the disciples somehow internalize this and make it just a personal thing and not have it be about, oh my goodness, this guy that we followed is not just a, a carpenter, but he's the son of God and all glory is gonna go to him. And so it becomes all about that and not just about them. It became a collective thing. And maybe for some of you, the reason that your faith is stalled out, maybe the reason that it's gotten stale is because you're trying to do something in private that was only ever meant to be a party. To use the illustration that I used last week, the, the church of God is meant to be a body, and as a body, we all are different body parts. Now, if you're disconnected from the body, it would be like looking at someone and their leg is disconnected and on the floor. That's gross. That would be, that would be a dysfunctional body. Don't be gross. Be connected. So that's the first thing that I want us to see is just that it's meant to be this collective thing. Now, let's zoom in here because the first rhythm of health for them was that they were devoted to the apostles' teachings. Devoted to the apostles' teachings. Now, that asks a question. Who are the apostles and what was their teaching? An apostle was someone who stood under the teachings of Jesus, who has been given authority by Jesus, and there was a sign of authority by Jesus upon them. So these are people that witnessed the, the, the life and the ministry of Jesus. They saw the resurrection and they had a sign of authority on them. So this was a defined number of people. It wasn't everybody. It was just a small group of individuals who were given the authority. The word apostle means simply to be a messenger of God. 
And so they had a sign of authority on them. That sign would have been the ability to perform miracles. This was specifically a value in the Jewish culture because for the Jewish culture, they would authenticate a prophet as being from God by the ability to perform signs and wonders. And that's what the apostles would have done. So these would have been people like the 12 disciples, not Judas, because he was done with. They put Matthias in his place. And Paul was also one of these apostles as well. They had authority from God. So that means I'm not an apostle, right? There is no current apostles that have that authority given from Christ. Now, I might function as a church planter in an apostolic kind of entrepreneurial kind of way, but you don't come to church to hear my teachings. We step in to study the, the teachings of the apostles. That's what we do. So what was the apostles' teaching? Were they just spending all of their time talking about the prophets and the law? Was that it? Well, it would have included that, and I'm going to talk about why. But mostly, their testimony was the testimony of Christ. They spent their time proclaiming in speech who Jesus was, what they had witnessed. We saw him from when he was baptized. These things, guys, you met, like this is unbelievable. We're so used to like nominalizing children and the, and, and the marginalized, but Jesus brought them in closer. He was a friend of sinners, and so they would tell, tell them about Jesus. They were witnesses to the resurrection. This is, this is because this was the last thing that Jesus told them they were going to do. Jesus said in Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on me and on you, and you're going to be witnesses in all of these places. And so that's what they were doing. They were being witnesses, and they would speak about Jesus. Now, this feels, it doesn't feel weird to us, but I just want you to recognize that we live largely in a text-dominated culture that it only ever happens if somebody wrote it down, if someone was there to tweet about it, post it on Facebook, or write an article. That's what verifies that something that happened. But in the first century, that wasn't the case. They were largely a hearing-dominated culture. And it wasn't that they were stupid or non-literate, it's just that in that culture, there wasn't a pressing reason for them to be. Information and culture passed on by word of mouth and from generation to generation. It's why things like songs were so important to them. Because you can remember the lyrics to songs very, very easily. Watch this. Oh, we're halfway there. Oh, living on a... You know exactly what it is because songs kind of become a part of uh, your, your understanding of the world. That's how they would have developed theology. They had songs about Jesus that they would have had, right? And so this was largely a hearing-dominated thing. They understood truth by that. So when it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, this was the apostles stepping up and speaking to them, declaring to them about Jesus and what he had to say. Paul tells us that it's the proclamation, the verbal proclamation, I'm in relationship with you, and I am declaring the truth of Jesus. That's the thing that does something effectual for faith. Romans 10 says, faith comes by hearing the message and the message is heard through the word. Now this is fascinating because there are actually three different Greek words for the word word, okay? There's the logos, which is the message. There's graphe, which think about graphic, write it down, that would be like a scribe. And then there was rima. Rima was the proclaimed word, the spoken word. That's what I'm doing with you right now. The, what you have in front of you is the graphe. What I'm speaking is the rima. And he says that message is heard through the proclamation about Christ. 
And that's what their environment would have been. All of these young believers gathering near the apostles just to hear about Jesus. So where on earth did our Bibles come from? Last week I said the, the, the cornerstone of our faith is the resurrection. It's not a collection of writings that, we, that they didn't even have for a couple centuries. The, the gospel accounts didn't show up till the 90s or so. So 30, 40, 50 years after Jesus was resurrected. So where does the Bible come for us? Well, the apostles were authoritative. And so as the church spread through persecution and in other means, there were believers in other places and the apostles would write down, hey, this is what you need to know about what it means to follow Jesus. And so they would send the letter. And by the way, it was almost never hiding in my closet reading it. It was almost always read in the context of a congregation with that Rima proclamation. And so it was written down, it was passed on. And just in the early church, this is what they recognized. They recognized that the writings of these apostles was inspired by the Spirit of God. It was God-breathed to these authors. And they said that we see that the writings of Peter, the writings of Paul, are just as authoritative as Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and Psalms and everything in the Old Testament. It is authoritative. It is inspired by God. So why do we spend all of our time, why do we spend some of our time in the Old Testament when we study? It's fascinating that when Jesus, after his resurrection, it says that he was walking down the road to a place called Emmaus, and he was walking with some followers of the way, and Jesus decided to kind of put blinders on their eyes so they didn't understand who he was. And it said, beginning with the prophets and the law, he showed them how all of the Old Testament pointed to him. All of it was about Jesus from beginning to end. Hebrews chapter one says that in the past, God used to speak to our forefathers through prophets, but now he's spoken to us through his son. It was all about Jesus from the very beginning. And so we study the Old Testament because you know what it does? It shows us that we need Christ. Galatians says that the law points us to our need. It's a tutor. It points us to our need for Jesus. So we study the Old Testament because it points us to Jesus. It's no wonder then that it says that they were devoted to the apostles' teachings. They were devoted to it. The Greek word that's translated devoted, it means this. It means to continue steadfastly, to persevere. It's staying strong and unwavering. Even when... Even when it's difficult, even when your parents think you're stupid for following this, even when your brother-in-law would say, man, why would you even believe this? They were devoted to it no matter what. Think about what it means when you're devoted to your spouse, to your children. You're saying, I'm going to press on. And it's not just a matter of like grin and bear it. It's I'm delighting in them. They were delighting in the apostles' teachings. So the first rhythm of health is being devoted to that kind of teaching. This is what we would refer to as knowing it. It's the story of Christ. The second thing they were devoted to is fellowship, is fellowship. This is what we call living it, living it in community. It's really interesting, this word fellowship, it's the first time it even shows up in the New Testament. 
It's the Greek word koinonia. Now, when you hear fellowship, it's not a word we use very often, right? There's like Lord of the Rings, fellowship of the ring. Here's what koinonia kind of points to, and that helps us understand it because koinonia means a shared kind of participation in something. So think about Lord of the Rings where the elves and the dwarves, they all came together and they said, hey, we're gonna share in this quest to go take the ring into Mordor and destroy it. We're participating. We're gonna bring our resources to bear, our efforts to bear. We're gonna come alongside you and we're gonna press in on this. That's what koinonia means. That's what koinonia means. We've decided that that idea of sharing in, doing life with, was so important that we wanted to put it into our very name as a church. Grace Fellowship, God's riches at Christ's expense, and we're gonna experience that with fellowship with one another. I wanna take a look at in the next couple verses because it really just kinda like zooms in on what this koinonia actually looks like. The next couple verses, this is what it says. It says, all the believers were together. And this wasn't necessarily, uh, you know, this wasn't easy when they had a price on their head. Being together was risky, and yet they chose that I'm gonna come and I'm actually gonna share in proximity with one another. This isn't simply being friends on Facebook, this is being in the same room. He said all of them were together, and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. This is what it meant to have fellowship, to be in koinonia. It means I'm sharing with you when you have a need, and you're sharing with me. I like to go backpacking every once in a while. And when you go backpacking, some people go by themselves, but they're weirdos. I like to go with somebody. And here's why. It's because if Doug and I go backpacking and we're going to be having like a tent that we share, I say, hey, Doug, you take the tent poles. I'm going to take the rain fly. I say, you take, you take the, 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 the trail mix. I'm going to take the Kansas soup, right? And, and we share the load together. And I know that if we go out and I twist my ankle, Doug is going to be there and he's the one that has to go get help. And if he hurts himself, I have to be the one that's going to go shoulder that burden to help him get help. That's what it means to be in community. It's not just, hey, man, I'm not going to share my water with you. Why would you want my water, you selfish person? No, it'd be like, I recognize that if Doug hurts, I hurt. And if I hurt, Doug hurts. And so what I have, I'm gladly going to make that resource available to other people. That's what they did. In fact, two chapters later, it says that they didn't even consider what they had to be theirs. They just said, how can it be used? How can it be used for community? Now, just a footnote. This is not a model for the government. Some people would look at this and say, see, socialism, that's what we should have. No, that's, that's when the government forces you to do something. That's not what they're talking about. This is voluntarily, voluntarily giving of yourself for the sake of your community. That's healthy. It also doesn't mean that you're not allowed to have personal property because in the very next verse, this is what it says. It says that they met in their homes. That's just the point. <laughs> the church needs somewhere to meet. We don't have somewhere. You know what? My house is big enough. Guys, why don't you come over to my house? What's mine is yours. You need a car? I'm going to let you use my car. Do you? Let me ask you a question. Do you see your house that way? Do you see your possessions that way? Do you see... Your, your things that you cherish and love that way? Do you see your, do you see your resources or your, your abilities that way? That, you know what, God, you gave it to me, and this is something that I'm a steward of. Do you know what that word steward means? It means that it's been entrusted to you to use well. And everything God has given us, he's given us to use well. 
Ephesians tells us that we've been created for good works that he's prepared in advance for us to do. Now listen, I don't believe that God did this and God operated it this way because he needs our help. Like he's God, right? Like he could take care of all the needs like that. And yet his son came to earth and he modeled what it means to give of himself, to be a steward of, and to give to other people. And so if we're going to be like little Christ, it means that we're going to follow that kind of model. And we do it because it gives us joy. And we get to participate in the kind of, uh, the kind of character and nature of God in Christ that he demonstrated. That's why Jesus said, hey, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. We get to do this. We get to exist that kind of way. So radical generosity, that was the mark of the early church. In fact, we could even say that having a selfish Christian in that environment is like an oxymoron for them. So they devoted themselves, the apostles' teaching, they devoted themselves to fellowship. It says every day they continued to meet together in the temple court. So it wasn't just Sunday morning, Sunday evening. They had regular contact They were in community with one another. That's why for us as a church, we said it's really important. Like we could have said, hey, we'll plant in Charlestown or Leesburg or Frederick and have like a regional kind of pull. But we said we want to be in the kind of place where we're going to see each other in the park and in the grocery store. And we want to see each other, um, you know, when we go out to eat. Like that's what we want our community to be. It says they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Now, the reason I didn't say that one of the um, like pillars, one of the rhythms was communion, like breaking bread, is because this would have included something like communion or the Passover for them. But because of what it says, that they're in each other's homes, they just shared meals together. It was that, but it was much more than that. It, it was them welcoming and having intimacy. Did you realize that when you invite someone to come into your home, you, when you have dinner with someone, that's an invitation to spiritual and relational intimacy. Some of you are, are really, really good at this. This is why we, um, this is why we, we, we want to eat together as life groups. This is, this is why we eat together after church often because it's significantly spiritually important. And one of my concerns, listen to me, is this. My concern is that when we get a new building, I've seen this happen my whole life. When we get a building, everyone just centers on that space. Where are we gonna meet? Let's meet at the building. Of course, we're paying for it. Let's meet there, right? But we're called to be in each other's lives. And so, just as a general rule, if someone says, hey, can we meet in the building? I'll say, well, can you fit in your home? And if the answer is yes, then meet in your home. (laughs) That's what God wants us to do. We wanna be in each other's lives. Some of us are really, really great at doing this. We just reach out to other people and say, hey, come with me to the winery. Let's go tubing down the river. Let's spend time together. And you just engage that kind of way. Is that the kind of church community that you pursue? Is that what you experience? Listen, this doesn't have to be like, I am so gregarious and I just like to party and have all sorts of people over. I said, no, we're having a birthday party. I need help chopping down a tree. How can I help you with putting your shed up? You know, like, it's just spending time with one another. A couple years ago, we went to California, and we got to see some of the amazing trees in California, the sequoias, the redwoods. Have you ever seen the redwoods? They're some of the largest and oldest living things on the planet, 2,200 years old, 300 feet high, and you would think that something that is so huge would have a massive root system that would bury down into the ground 50 and 100 feet, but that's not the case. 
In fact, the experts tell us that they actually have very shallow root systems. They only go five or six feet down, but they spread out for like 125 feet. But even that's not enough to make that tree stable in the strong winds and storms that may come. But what happens is that the roots of each redwood frequently grow intertwined with their neighbors. By holding hands underground, they create this network and they're able to withstand storms that otherwise they couldn't withstand. When we have interlocking root systems like that, when we have proximity with one another, when we support each other, here's what we're doing. We're giving each other the strength to endure and persevere. And so when someone's hurting, I say, I know that you're, you're suffering right now. How can I come alongside you and help you? How can I loan you my faith when you feel like you don't have any? <laughs> right? How can I prop you up? That's what the church does when it's devoted to fellowship. Last thing that verse 42 says is that they were devoted to prayer. And I want you to think about what they would have been experiencing because their, their leaders were being arrested. John and Peter were thrown into jail and this small group of people were like, oh my gosh, is this gonna come for us next? And they're freaking out and what do they do? They gather around each other and they start seeking the face of God. They just start praying the way that Jesus told them to pray and God moved mountains for them. They were devoted to prayer. You know, as I read over this passage and I see these things, they're devoted to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, they're devoted to prayer. This is so inspiring. And, and like, I want to be a community that's radically marked that kind of way. But it also makes me ponder and stop and say, if God was to kind of say, hey, this is how you're doing in these areas, how faithful are we being in those areas? How faithful am I? I being in my personal walk in those areas. You know, an area that I think we need to grow in a church, as a church, I think we, we open God's word every week. We spend time in fellowship with one another. I don't think we're all that strong in prayer. We'll show up for a barbecue and to help someone move a thing, but so oftentimes a prayer gathering is the least attended thing that we can do, and prayer is like this five-minute window tacked onto the end of life group. And it's become largely a spare tire for when things hit the fan and we, we feel freaked out about it rather than being the steering wheel that drives our lives. I know that's true for me. I think that's true for us. What I think's interesting is, is what was the outcome of that kind of rhythms of health that the church was operating in, devoted to the apostles' teachings, devoted to fellowship, devoted to prayer, it says this, it says, they broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, and listen, what's the outcome? They were enjoying favor of all the people. That other people looked at what was happening in the church and it was just irresistible when the church was being the church and the body was being the body and they were studying the words and the ways of Christ and they were caring for one another. It was so dynamic. And this is what every church longs and yearns for when we're just being the body. Luke says that when the people around them looked into the church, it's like they took notice. They peered in and they saw people that loved each other and they enjoyed the favor of all the people. This is exactly what Jesus predicted would happen in John chapter 13. John chapter 13, Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by how you love one another. Not by how you vote, not by what your jobs are, 
not by how well you can recite scripture, but by how you love one another. A church like that, man, that's irresistible. Who would want to be a part of a church like that? Something that's so full of warm regard and people are just taking care of one another. It says that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, I want you to notice this because it's in yellow. <laughs> who did the adding? Who did the adding? The Lord did the adding. The Lord that did it. So Jesus sat Peter down and he said, Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Listen, we, we, we work and we study and we fellowship and we pray and we do what we do, but the growth ultimately belongs to our God. I love our church. Listen, I am 100% in the missional thinking category. I want to see people that are far from God come be near God. I want to see them find healing and hope and meaning in community. I want all of that stuff. I read passages like this and I think that would be awesome. God adding to our numbers on a daily basis, but listen to me. According to Luke, faithfulness is our job. And fruitfulness is God's job. God doesn't tell us, hey, you've got to go save these people. He's the one that's going to do the work. We're just called to be faithful with what God put in front of us. To love him, to praise him, to worship him, to pray to him, to love each other, to show the kindness of Christ. We be faithful with that and God will take care of the fruitfulness. Healthy things will grow. Healthy disciples will make disciples. Healthy churches will plant churches. But none of that is forced. This, is hap this happens when we are being faithful. And guys, listen. This applies to our lives as well. Not, not just our organization as a church, but you as an individual person. Because I, I talk with you and some of you are worried about your jobs and your families and health and politics and my spouse and my kids and it's like they're striving and I just want to make sure that we can get to this outcome. It has to have this kind of outcome and so I've got to make it happen that that outcome would happen and if I could just do this then that would happen. And we're focusing on there has to be this fruitfulness in front of me. Listen, I get that. Like, that is the major temptation of my heart, too. But Jesus says, listen, don't worry about all that stuff. He says, don't, don't worry about what you're going to eat and what you're going to wear. Look at the lilies of the field. They don't labor or spin, and yet they're clothed in glory. They're sparrows of the field. They don't, they don't, they're not stressed out with worry, and yet God cares for, one, for every single one of them. So Jesus says this, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness. And all of these things will be added unto you as well. And God would look at each one of us and would say, I know that you want that job. I know that you want to control how your kids are going to turn out. I know you want to know how school's going to be. I know, I know you want this move to be successful. I know that you want your spouse back. I know you want all of that. But listen, fruitfulness is my job. You just be faithful with what's right in front of you. And you learn, here it is. You learn to trust me. You learn to treasure me. You learn to trust me. And when you do that, the book of Hebrews chapter 11 says that when we learn to trust God like that, 
regardless of the outcome, that he looks at us and says, I am proud to be called your God because you understand my heart. You love me, you treasure me, you trust me. When we put God first as a church, when we're devoted to the apostles' teachings, when we focus on caring for one another, when we're devoted to prayer, God will do the multiplying. We're just called to be faithful and he'll be the one that's fruitful. Let me pray for us and then we're gonna respond just in a moment of worship. We're gonna let our hearts settle in on this. With every eye closed, every head bowed. Just spend a couple moments here talking to the Lord about this. God, you know that this message was a message I speak to myself. <laughs> How quickly I speak to, I seek to control an outcome And over and over again, you have simply said, be faithful. Be faithful to what you've asked me to do. God, may that be true for us as a church. May that be true for us as an organization. May that be true for uh, us as fathers and mothers and spouses and friends in this space, God. For the things that you've clearly put in front of us that we know, it's not unclear. We're just being disobedient. It's not unclear what it means to love. It's not unclear what it means in our lives. God, give us that kind of step forward of faith that will do what you've asked us to do and let the fruit be up to you. We pray this in the name of Jesus.